This is the Road Trekking Podcast with your host, Jimmy James. It's a show about my trip from Ontario to British Columbia and back in a vintage 92 camper van. And I invite you to come along for the ride. Welcome to episode 11, Abbotsford to Hornby Island, the hippy-dippy experience. Let's start it off with the trip log. Total kilometers traveled, 6,987. Didn't uh, put a lot of kilometers on the van on this leg of the journey. Uh, Most of it was ocean going. My current location is on Hornby Island, a small island between Vancouver Island and the mainland of British Columbia. GPS coordinates, I have no idea. And maintenance costs still around $800, uh, although the thermostat in the van has now broken, I'm quite sure of it. Last we spoke, I was in Abbotsford, and I had just had a great meal at a local sports pub, probably the first uh, really good dinner that I had with a beer for under 20 bucks on this whole trip. And I had headed back to the van uh, with the intention of hitting the Vancouver uh, ferry the next day. I just want to talk for a minute about ferries. Now, this was all... Uh, completely new to me. Everybody told me you have to book your ferry on the website. Now, the website is called bcferries.com. That's how you book your, uh, they call it your sailing. So basically, that's when you book your departure time. Now, I went onto the website and basically everything was full. Didn't seem to matter what time of day and even full for days out into the future, which I didn't think would be the case. However, they do reserve a certain number, and I think it depends on the time of day, but it could be anywhere between 30 to 50 or 60% of the space on the ferry for basically uh, first come, first serve passengers. However, the road track is technically an oversized vehicle because the overall height, at least according to the manual, is eight feet. And uh, the British Columbia ferries uh, regard anything over seven feet high to be oversized. Uh, That being said, they do reserve a specific amount of room for oversized vehicles. So now armed with the knowledge that if I were to show up early enough, I could get a first come first serve on one of their sailings, I set out to the Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal. Now, there's two ferry terminals that can take you from the greater Vancouver area to Vancouver Island, Uh, one of them being in downtown Vancouver, and the other is in the North Vancouver area, and that's called Horseshoe Bay. I was advised that if I were to take the Horseshoe Bay Ferry, I'd probably do better. It's less busy, and it actually crosses over into a smaller town called Nanaimo, as opposed to the ferry from downtown Vancouver, which will take you over to Victoria. Now, Vancouver uh, itself is the largest city in British Columbia, although it's not the capital, which is interesting. Vancouver boasts a population of about 662,000 people, while the greater Vancouver area has a population of over 2 million. Contrast that with Victoria, which is actually the capital of British Columbia, has a population of about 350,000 people in the entire area, and I believe the city core itself is somewhere in the neighborhood of only 90,000. 
So that being said, I avoided the uh, Vancouver to Victoria Ferry and I headed out around 8.45 a.m. hoping to make the 11.05 ferry, knowing that it would take me about uh, 45 minutes to get to the ferry terminal. Now, when I had checked just before I left, the website, which actually is quite comprehensive, shows you real-time data in terms of how much availability there is on the ferry. And it was showing about 45% for oversized vehicles at that time. However, by the time I got to the ferry, uh, the app was showing that the ferry was completely full, at least in the oversized category. So I ended up having to wait for the next sailing. This was a little lesson for me because I learned that if I want to get one of these first come first serve spots, I got to make sure that I really am the first to come. So show up at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours early if you want to be guaranteed to get a spot on the ferry. When you purchase a ticket for one of these first come first serve sailings, and I didn't know this before I showed up, but there is no specific time on the ticket. They just sell you a ticket and they'll measure your vehicle, in my case, because I was oversized, uh, charge you accordingly, and they'll just put you in a queue. And you literally just wait in this queue. And when the ferry comes to the dock, they'll load as many vehicles on the ferry as they can. Everybody sort of moves up in the line. Once the ferry's full, that's it. They shut the gates, the ferry sails away, and you're basically stuck in this no man's land somewhere after the ticket gate, but not on the ferry. And you just have to wait. Now, this is the really cool thing about traveling in a camper van is wherever I go, I'm home. So I literally went in the back. I had a sandwich. I think I watched some TV or listened to some radio, uh, took some notes and just sort of hung around until the next ferry came. I eventually uh, got on the next ferry and we started sailing out across what they call the uh, Georgia Strait. Now, Vancouver Island is the largest island on the west coast of the Americas. Um, it, It basically is bordered on the west side by the Pacific Ocean, but on the east side of Vancouver Island. So the area between Vancouver Island and the BC mainland, they refer to as the Strait of Georgia and or the Georgia Strait, I'm sorry. And that's what this ferry crosses in order to take me to Nanaimo. So you pull on the ferry, and this was a completely new experience to me. I have taken ferries before, um, but having an oversized vehicle is a little bit different. So they load you down in the bowels of, of the ferry. And in my case, they actually kind of, there's these side ramps in the ferry. So they sort of guided me up this side ramp, and I ended up parking up top there, which made it really confusing for when we had to leave the vehicles and go up top, because you're not allowed to stay in the vehicle while the ferry is sailing. The other thing that I want to note while I'm thinking about it is because my van has an onboard propane tank, you're supposed to advise them when you get your ticket and go and shut your propane off. Uh, They don't want any uh, running or open propane cylinders on the ferry. And you have to put a little red sticker, which uh, 
or like a red tag, actually. Uh, you're, I'm, you're supposed to put it on the propane tank, but on the road track camper van, the propane tank is hidden inside a compartment. So I just put mine on my dash. Nobody asked me any questions, so I figured that it was fine. So once we were all loaded up, the ferry departed, and we basically went on an uneventful uh, hour and a half, hour and 45-minute cruise Um you know, across the Georgia Strait over to Nanaimo. The really, the only interesting thing about this, I mean, besides being on a boat, is uh, I got to see the mountains on the mainland basically disappear from view. And these mountains are all covered on the top with this mist. And as you cross the, the water, Vancouver Island comes into view and Vancouver Island has mountains too. So you're like leaving one set of mountains and then you come across this, the, the water and you see the mountains starting to open up and it's very misty. So you can see the mountains sort of coming into view. I thought that was a really neat visual and I ended up taking quite a few pictures of that. I enjoyed that quite a bit. The other interesting thing that I found uh, was that I the <laughs> it was the depth of the water. I have a, an app on my phone because I'm a fisherman, as you know, that tells me the depth of wherever I am. And I just happened to open up this uh, app. And r- right when I was in the harbor, right as soon as I got sort of to the top deck of the ferry, and it told me that we were already in over 800 feet of water. I don't think I've ever been in water that deep and I've you know grew up and I fished the Great Lakes but uh, certainly I don't think I've ever been in seven eight hundred feet of water in a harbor you know or just leaving a harbor so I thought that was really interesting otherwise as I said it was quite uneventful the water was calm and we just basically cruised across over to Nanaimo once I arrived in Nanaimo and departed the ferry uh, I headed up the uh, basically the coastal highway. Now, this highway is called Highway 19, and it's a modern highway. But at a point just north of Nanaimo, you have an option basically to head off on the right. And I believe you're driving up the old coastal highway. So you're right on the coast. And I'm sure that it would have much, much better views. But time was ticking on at this point, And I had to get to my host house uh, in uh, Campbell River. So I wanted to make some good time. So I stayed on the modern, uh, faster highway. And I headed up. And I still got some really great views. Nice little town that you cruise through as you wind your way up there past Nanaimo there's Parksville which is a nice town too and you keep going until eventually you reach Campbell River now Campbell River is a really cool little town it has a, a downtown area where they have a sculpture park and all kinds of parks it's on the water of course uh, little shops and Part of the town is owned by the First Nations people, and the other part of the town is not. So uh, you'll see lots of native art, native wood carvings, lots of cool stuff to look at. And there's a boardwalk that basically runs the length of the town, and you can walk down that boardwalk, and as the tide comes in and out, there's all kinds of different stuff exposed on the beach. Something I noticed, and this is really the first time I noticed this uh, on Vancouver Island, is there is tons of driftwood. For whatever reason, this place is like a magnet uh, for driftwood. Driftwood just washes up on the shore, and at the high water mark, there is driftwood everywhere. 
I asked some people, uh, you know, if they burn it, because I was like, you know, as, as somebody who has a wood burning stove in their house, I'm like, this seems like the easiest way to get free wood. But they told me that if you actually burn driftwood, because it's from salt water, uh, the salt will come out of the wood and it will corrode your fireplace. So basically people who burn driftwood have to replace their wood stoves uh, every couple years. So I thought that was something really interesting to note. I arrived at my host's place in Campbell River uh, around 4 or 5, and Christina and Norm are just absolutely fabulous people. Um, they greeted me. We had some steak. We got to just spend the night getting acquainted, chatting, and just, you know, just talking local stuff and sort of getting an understanding for what life is like on the island, which I found really interesting. Anyway, I turned in early that night, and I was surprised the next morning um, they had decided that they were going to take me out fishing. I'm not going to give away the name of the lake, but they took me to a little lake, and we took a little aluminum boat with a, an electric trolling motor, and we spent the day basically just cruising around this lake. And I, this is the first time, actually, now that I'm thinking of it, in my whole trip where I changed... Uh, my lure on my rod. So I noticed that Norm was using a uh, what they call a gang troll, which is basically a long line with a set of spinners or, or kind of rotating spoons around it. And then at the end of that, you'd put a hook with a worm. And this whole uh, contraption is probably about three feet long. He started catching fish immediately with this and my my poor crocodile spoon was definitely getting outperformed here so he was kind enough to give me one of his and then I started catching fish too now we decided that we were going to keep the fish for a pan fry later however on this lake there was a pair of bald eagles and I've seen lots of bald eagles in Ontario but these ones were really curious normally you'll just see sort of a bald eagle in passing or a bald eagle doing its own thing but these bald eagles actually sort of started to circle us and Norm he's done this before I can tell he took one of the fish that we were keeping and he threw it up into the air and the bald eagle saw the fish splash down and came down swooped down and grabbed uh, this fish off the surface of the water. It was like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And you have to picture yourself. You're on this little crystal blue lake, uh, sort of uh, saddled by mountains uh, on either side. And now there are literally bald eagles circling us. So, of course, now I have to do it. So I'm throwing fish in the water. Norm's throwing fish. Uh, Christina and Norm's little guy, Freddie, he was with us. He's throwing fish in the water. This was just absolutely amazing. Uh, the pair of bald eagles were just swooping down and picking up the fish. I also got some really great video and photo of that. I'm going to share that on my Instagram. But I've never seen anything like this. It was, it was absolutely incredible to see the bald eagles so comfortable getting so close and actually being able to sort of feed them. I thought that was really neat. Something else that happened was uh, one of the bald eagles, when it came down and it, it got a fish that I had thrown, uh, it dropped a feather. Now, Norm is uh, from the First Nations, and he told me that that was a gift uh, from that bald eagle for me. So, um, 
I thought that that was really, I thought that that was really amazing. And it was a sort of a special moment for me. So we spent the day fishing. And by the end of it, I had easily caught my limit of small rainbow trout, which was just awesome. After spending an awesome day on the water, we headed back to their place and they made me dinner again. We just hung around and had some drinks and got to talk. And the overall consensus was that like now, Jimmy, we're showing you this is island life. You know, we're, we're going fishing through the day. We're relaxing in the evening. And it was it was really nice, really nice. The next day, They took me out fishing again, and this time on a different lake, which I also will not name. But they showed me a place where they actually got engaged, where Norm had proposed to Christina, and that was really cool. Now, what they described to me was, um, at that time, which I think was seven or eight years ago, uh, this was Crown Land, and people had set up trailers and kind of had a little... Uh, mini trailer park sort of makeshift crown land campsite but since then one of the logging companies uh, had come in and they basically leased this land from the government put up gates to prevent people from coming in and using the land and (laughs) that being said I saw no evidence of logging I did see gates And what had happened is all these campsites where people had once had trailers or tents or whatever um, were basically taken over by nature. And we we had gotten out of the boat and walked around and they showed me where Norm had proposed and where their trailer was. But uh, it was really it was really interesting how nature took over so fast. I mean, there was almost no evidence of any kind of human activity in this area, uh, save maybe a a few rocks, a semicircle that is where a fire pit used to be, or something like that. I thought that was fascinating how quickly uh, that that area recovered, considering apparently they had been using that for 20 years. We caught lots of fish that day, uh, the same kind of fish, little, uh, sm- I don't want to say small, but like a pan fry size rainbow trout. And that day we kept them and we brought them home and we actually had a fish dinner, which was, which was really amazing. So with a full stomach and a couple of the local beers in me, I headed back to the van and got a really good sleep. Now, the next morning, I sort of had a lazy morning and took my time getting ready because my plan was to go over to Hornby Island. Hornby Island is one of the many islands that are between Vancouver Island and the mainland. And in order to get to Hornby Island, you actually have to take two ferries. You take a ferry first to Denman Island and then a ferry to Hornby. Uh, there's another island that you can get to. I believe it's called Cortez and you have to go to Quadra and then Cortez. And this is a common thing. There's lots of little islands and you sort of have to ferry jump uh, between them to get to them. And these ferries are a lot different than the big ferry that I took from the mainland to Vancouver Island. Typically, they're small ferries. Your vehicle actually, it doesn't go into a hold. It stays up top. And the ferry ride might only take like 5 to 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes tops. Um, I don't think that you could reserve these ferries. It was all just a first-come, first-served sort of system. 
So despite the fact that the ferry rides are quite short, I actually found the wait to be quite long. Um, when I got there, I, I think I had to wait at least like an hour or so uh, to get a ferry. And these ferries literally say it's a 10-minute ride, so it just goes to one side to the other, one side to the other, you know, to and fro. And it was strange because the wait for the second ferry, so from Denman Island to Hornby Island, was actually a longer wait than the wait from Vancouver Island to Denman, which didn't seem to make sense because I'm assuming as you're going across these islands, you'll at least have the same number of people or maybe less people because some people will be staying on Denman. Now, Hornby Island, really interesting place and interesting lore uh, surrounding it. It's home to just over a thousand permanent residents, but judging from what I saw, the number of people on this island during the tourist season or the summer months is way more. Now, it has a reputation as being sort of a, a hippie type uh, artisty island that was originally populated by draft dodgers uh, from the Vietnam War, and it slowly grew into this sort of communal uh, this communal type environment, which I was really interested to see. Now that that is the lore. Um, the reality, I think, is a little bit different, and I think it's certainly different uh, today from what it was uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And of course, like most places, by the time we hear about it, uh, it, it has changed substantially. Nonetheless, uh, I arrived on Hornby Island, and I was heading to my host's house, uh, Diane, who's a permanent resident of Hornby Island, and I actually have an interview with her, uh, which you'll be able to listen to next, which is uh, fascinating. But uh, I was looking for her place, and her directions, I mean, Diane is a wonderful lady, but maybe not the best at providing directions, especially to somebody who's never been there. So you have to remember, this is all completely new to me. So I arrived and I'm trying to get a hold of her and she's, she's, she can be a tough lady to get a hold of. So I decided I was going to drive the main road on the island and the island really only has one main road that sort of makes a horseshoe shape around the majority of the island. Now, I drove the extent of that road, which took me past uh, some of the parks on the island. Uh, notably, there's tri uh, the Tribune Bay, uh, which is a big beach. And there's also the Hallowell Park, which has hiking trails and stuff like that. And I continued on. You go by the co-op, which is I think is the only proper store on the island. I'm going to talk about that in a minute because it's a cool spot. But if you keep going, you go all the way around, you actually get to a marina. So it would be possible to take a boat to this island and then dock it, I guess, at the marina. This marina, it first of all, it appeared like a multi-million dollar marina. Absolutely beautiful. Huge glass panels for walls. Everything was done up. But it had the strangest service model that I have ever seen or come across at any restaurant. And, you know, of course, this is all new to me, so I'm completely confused. Uh, I walk into the restaurant and I decide I'm going to grab something for lunch, maybe grab a, a beer. 
and uh, I I go to the uh, counter. There's no waitress to come and, you know, seat me. So I say, oh, I'd like, uh, you know, a table. And she says, okay, well, you pick, you select any table you want. And I said, okay, fine. So I, I went outside on the patio and I sat at a table and I sat there and sat there and sat there and don't get me wrong, I enjoyed sitting there. It's an absolutely beautiful view. The day was amazing, bright, sunny, almost not a cloud in sight. And, uh, you know, all the typical marina things going on with gulls overhead and people down below servicing their boats and boats coming and going. But I, I literally probably waited there for half an hour um, and nobody served me. So I went up to the bar and I said, I'm sorry, you know, nobody has come to serve me. And I said, oh, no, you have to come to the bar to get service. So I'm like, okay, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take uh, this. You know, I, I ordered something off the menu and I, I ordered a beer. And they poured me the beer and I went back to my table. And there was somebody sitting at my table. In fact, it wasn't somebody. It was a family had taken the table that I was sitting at. So I'm like, what? <laughs> What the heck is going on here? Anyway, luckily enough, there was another table just beside it. So I went to that table. But uh, I've never come across that where um, you pick it, you somehow have to order your food and then take it to a table. But while you're ordering your food, people could take your table. Um, I think that's basically how like a, like a chip truck works with picnic tables out front of it. Uh, and yet this was like a multi, multi-million dollar high-end uh, marina. You also had to pay for all your drinks and uh, food up front at the bar when you ordered it. So they are basically operating on like a chip truck model. And that seemed really strange to me. And to be honest, it was a little bit off-putting. Um, I did have a little bite to eat and I had a beer and I decided I was going to head back down around that road and try and find my host's place because I did have some general directions. It was just, it's hard to, it's hard to find your way around uh, on these islands because the roads aren't particularly well marked and the house numbers are not particularly well marked. Um, perhaps for a reason. I, I'm not. I'm not quite sure what that reason is. Maybe it has to do with the the fact that there's so many tourists, and the locals maybe don't want the tourists going down some of these roads. But nonetheless, I figured I would take a, a zip around and see if I could find where it is that I was supposed to go. I think I cruised up and down that road about three times before I finally gave up. And I wasn't hearing back from Diane. Um, so I figured, you know what, I'm just going to find a spot to camp. So I actually just pulled down some random side road. And I didn't know this until I spoke to Diane, but it was probably the best place that I could have pulled down because it ended up going to a trailhead. And this trailhead had a small parking lot and it serviced some of the interior hiking trails on Hornby Island. That's the other thing. Hornby Island has this large horseshoe-shaped road, as I described uh, before, but there is like a spiderweb network of hiking trails that run through the island. 
Anyway, I parked my van there for the night, and shortly after I had parked, another van came in, and they parked too. Um, They were running a much newer model than mine, and they didn't come out of the van, which was weird. But uh, I stayed there for the night, and I had a great sleep. Nobody came to bother me, and I had no issues. The next morning when I woke up, the other van was gone. So uh, I had something to eat, and I drove down to the Hallowell Park hiking trail, which was really, really beautiful. I went on the hike, and it took me from what to me looked like old-growth forest to basically a beach uh, that ran around the northeast part of the island. And at one part, uh, I could actually see seals uh, laying in the sun, uh, on on these rocks that are sort of just off the island. And I saw that. <laughs> and so I, of course, you know, being like a Boy Scout, I'm prepared, right? I've got a pair of mini binoculars. And I'm looking out at these seals and I'm looking in the water. The seals are sort of lounging and playing on these rocks. And then, you know, a few hundred yards behind them, I saw what I believe were the fins of orcas or killer whales. And I could also see the water spouts coming up. And that was really cool. And obviously, so now I'm a guy standing on the hiking trail with a pair of binoculars. People start stopping behind me and being like, what are you looking at? And I'm like, look, there's killer whales there and seals. So I became sort of this mini tour guide for a moment in a place that I had never been (laughs) and really wasn't sure what I was looking at. But I was happy that I was able to show those people some of the wildlife. After that, I found a a really quiet little place well off the beaten trail down on the beach where I figured I could just kind of stop and maybe write in my journal and just think about stuff, you know, just take everything in. But it was really strange, and I've noticed this quite a bit. For some reason, people attract other people. So I make an effort to go off the hiking trail. I walk down the beach. I walk down for a ways. I find this old piece of driftwood. Like I said, there's driftwood everywhere here. Uh, and I'm sitting on it. I'm just sitting there. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this group of other people come. And now they're like behind me talking loudly and everything. And I'm just like, okay, it's, it's time for me to move on. So I went back onto the trail and continued along until you basically go back into this old growth forest. And that's pretty well the end of the trail. Something that's really interesting here is I saw the first uh, and only maple tree that I had seen uh, on Vancouver Island and maybe in all of BC. Uh, And it was absolutely huge. It looked like a silver maple. It had very ornate leaves, but the trunk, it it had to be at least eight feet or nine feet in diameter. And this tree was like hundreds of feet tall. It was so cool. And I felt really grateful that I was able to see something like that. I've never seen a maple tree that big, certainly not uh, where I live in Ontario. Shortly after leaving the park, I did hear from my host, Diane, and she was able to give me some better directions. And uh, before I went to her house, actually, I stopped at that little co-op that I was talking about earlier because there's sort of like a buzz going around there. Uh, There's people coming and going, and it looks sort of like a happening spot. So I really wanted to check that out. What the co-op 
uh, consists of is basically an area where there is the co-op store, but there are also a number of little pavilions out front that look like cabanas and they sell things like t-shirts and jewelry and ice cream cones uh there might have been a, a food stand and then in the co-op itself it's really neat too because as i was saying i think this is the only store on the island uh it's this weird mishmash store so up top it's a grocery store like i guess any other small grocery store would be but they tend to carry a lot of more alternative type things some interesting uh like juices and stuff that i I had never seen before and then down below it's a hardware store slash liquor store and i'm like okay this is (laughs) this is a good spot so i picked up a couple of beers and uh, I, I headed out, threw them in the van, and I investigated the cabanas, walked around that area a little bit. And I'll tell you, the people that are drawn uh, to this island are very interesting. Um, I was probably the least interesting person uh, there. I saw a guy dressed like a druid. I saw a number of people that looked like they were ready to go to an electronic music dance festival. Um, And then I also saw families um, with children. I saw people who looked uh, like they hadn't showered in quite some time. It was a really interesting mix of people, but I can certainly see where the hippie reputation, the sort of uh, freedom uh, thing, it, it draws all these different people uh, to, <laughs> to this island. And that was really my first experience at seeing uh, some of the characters that were in, inhabiting, even if just for a short while, uh, this little area of the island. It's also interesting to note that near this co-op, there is Tribune Bay. And there's actually two parts to Tribune Bay. There, it's a beach. Um, the large part is looked really busy, crazy busy. Um, it's partially visible from the road. And I was like, there is no way I'm going to stop there, even though I really wanted to go and just lay on the beach. Um There's also what they call the Little Tribune Bay, which is a nudist beach. And I, considering the amount of tourists that were there, I was actually putting some consideration into going to the nudist part. But that being said, I don't really know what the protocol is for that. And uh, (laughs) I, I uh, I didn't feel comfortable not knowing, you know, Uh, what exactly I'm supposed to do. Like, at what point do you get nude? You know, it's it's a good question. I I don't, nobody's really able to tell me that. Uh, Anyway, so I didn't stop at the beach. Um, I headed uh, back around that ring road, um, back to where my host Diane's place was. Once I found her spot, which was a little bit off the beaten path, and I like that because that keeps the tourists away, and it actually kept me away for the first day I was on the island. But uh, 
Once I found her spot, I met Diane, amazing woman, and we were able to sit out and she told me some of her story. Now, I don't want to do any spoilers because the next episode is actually an interview that I was able to do with her, but she had a really interesting story and she had been living on the island for, I believe, over 20 years and had some really interesting insights into the people that lived on the island. Perhaps it was 30 years now that I'm thinking about it, but uh, really interesting insights into uh, the people that had originally inhabited the island. Um, Her property was part of a land cooperative, which is, I think they started basically as, and I, I think like a hippie commune. And then obviously the people that are a part of that age and you kind of age out of that. And then the, uh, the co-op, you know, ends up being a little bit gentrified, but, but not really. And they still sort of maintained that overall spirit of community, which I thought was really, really cool. Anyway, um, Diane and I sat out that night and we, we just swapped stories and I, I was amazed. Um, I was amazed by her story and everything like that. So I definitely encourage you to listen to the next episode where I have a really a good conversation with Diane. So I headed to bed for that night and uh, the next day I woke up and Diane told me that she was going to take me out and show me some of the parts of the island that were not frequented by tourists. I think because I had expressed to her, you know, it seems like there's just too many people on this island uh, to really enjoy the beauty of it. So she showed me some of the, let's quote unquote, local places. I'm not going to give any of them up, but I'm very fortunate that she was willing to do that. She showed me the beach that's used uh, by the island residents, and that was really cool. We were able to just walk along the seashore and look at rocks and uh, all kinds of clam-type things. And Even I found a spot where uh, the locals would come down. They had some lawn chairs set up, and they'd come down and watch the sunset, uh, or maybe it was a sunrise. I don't know. Maybe if I tell you which one, it would kind of tell you what side of the island it's on. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The locals would use this place. And uh, it was just a really, really beautiful spot. And later that day, she took me on a hike along one of the ridges that runs on the mountains, sort of in the middle of this island. Now, when I'm saying mountain, I don't mean the kind of mountains that I encountered on mainland BC or what I was looking at when I was on Vancouver Island. This is still looks like a mountain. It's just not as high. And there's a number of trails. As I was saying earlier, there's a spider web of trails through the middle of this island. But these trails run along that ridge. And that was a really, really beautiful walk that she took me on. And she told me she goes on that walk quite regularly. And perhaps that's what keeps her so youthful. So we took this walk and you're basically walking through a predominantly pine type forest. However, numerous times uh, we came across this unique tree that I had never seen before. It is called an arbutus tree. What's really cool about this tree, first of all, is uh, in a forest in an area where it's basically all conifers, coniferous trees, pine type trees. It looks 
like a deciduous tree. So kind of like that maple um, in that it has like a flat, broad leaf. But apparently the arbutus tree is a species of broad leaf evergreen tree. So it is, I think, a coniferous tree. The other thing that's really cool about it is the bark. When you see little ones, they have sort of a reddish type bark, but then as they get older and the tree gets bigger, that bark kind of peels away. And then it looks like a tree that ought to be dead. It has no bark on it, really. Uh, it just sort of has this greeny grayish wood. Um, perhaps there is like a, that is the bark. But to me, it looks like that layer when you peel the bark off a living tree. I think it might be called like the Cambrian layer or something like that. Anyway, um, it the, the trees look like they don't have any bark and yet they have all kinds of leaves on them. Really, really cool tree. The other thing uh, that's neat about it is that I'm told that they're considered sacred trees by the First Nations people and particularly the Salish people uh, used the tree bark and parts of the tree uh, for medicinal reasons. And I thought that was really neat. On some parts of this hike as well, you could get really good views of Vancouver Island and the mountains on Vancouver Island. And it was just a breathtaking view looking across the water. You know, you're in a pine forest, you're looking out across the water, and then you see this island in the distance with huge looming mountains. It's, it's really something to look at. What was interesting about this hike is that it lasted probably about two hours. And in that two hours, I think we only saw two people. And Diane knew both of them. <laughs> so even on an island that is so heavily trafficked by tourists, there are places that you could go, that the locals go, uh, where you'll not be bothered and you'll get that sort of peaceful tranquility that you're looking for when you venture to some of these places. That night, Diane and I sat out again, and I was able to have a really good conversation with her and actually record that for the podcast. And we just basically relaxed and enjoyed it. Uh, one of the things that she told me, I mean, immediately when I had come to the island, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I have to, you know, I need to buy property here, or get a vacation rent or do something. And she said, you know, you really have to be prepared uh, to live on this island because it's not like uh, living on the mainland, especially in the winter. Now, in the summer, the ferries run pretty constantly, but she told me that in the winter months, the ferries run very seldom. So if you need something that's not available on the island, you have to plan around that. You have to prepare and you have to know that if you catch a ferry over to the mainland and, you know, first to Denman, then to the mainland, uh, you're going to get stuck on the mainland if you don't catch that last ferry that would go from Denman back to Hornby, which I thought was really interesting, and it never really occurred to me. I mean, I feel I'm on an adventure, so 
I take these ferries, I go out to this island, I go, oh my God, it's amazing. This is, a, I can't believe that there's such a beautiful spot here. And it's probably been kept beautiful because it's a little bit harder to access. But then you think about how hard it is actually to access and you come to the realization that, you know, I'm sure in the winter, uh, this is not necessarily a, a fun place to live. It's probably quite hard, and with a population really of only about a thousand people, um, it's like just living in a tiny little town. And if you had problems with people or didn't get along with people, you literally can't get away from them. You're stuck on an island. So that that was just some food for thought for me. Anyway, uh, yeah, we had a great conversation, and I uh, I ducked in for the night and got ready to take the the two ferries back over to Vancouver Island uh, the next day. Well, that's it for the podcast this week. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd encourage you to like, subscribe, hit the notification icon on your podcast platform of preference. And of course, as always, I'd like to remind you all to be kind to one another and keep on road trekking. Bye.